truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, pause. We thank you for life. We recognize your hand in all things and uh, seek to know you. Um, be with our volunteers and staff, the people who are watching here in the live studio and people who are watching all over the world right now live streaming. We just pray that uh, seekers will find things I say which are stupid or wrong will be forgotten, and uh, we'll just be able to talk about these different things as they come up. In Jesus' name, amen. We received some responses from last week's show where we had uh, Brian Zhang and Jay Ball on. Uh, if you weren't with us, um, we might call Brian and Jay men who are somehow connected, still believing in some of the tenets and doctrines, even some of the practices of Joseph Smith, uh, uh, the founder of Mormonism. Uh, but having big issues with the institution operating on the earth today. One emailer wrote, this is from Tom, these two gentlemen are typical non-born-again Mormons. They are lost in a false religion and have to decide which teachings are true and which are false. They can't say they are Mormon unless they follow all the teachings of Joseph Smith, including the fact that he married 11 women who were already hap happily married. Uh, now, you know, understand, I, I understand Mormonism pretty well. Uh, by the way, I think that fact is wrong, according to Todd Compton's book on 11, but that could be wrong. Uh, but I understand Mormonism pretty well, and you might be wondering why I didn't take Brian to, and Jay to task over some debatable points brought up relative to water baptism and repentance and temple work and priesthood and salvation. Brian said some things I didn't necessarily agree with, and uh, I'm sure I said some things that Brian didn't agree with. It's impossible to know a person's heart. You, we really can't. No matter what they say, we don't know their intentions. You don't know my intentions. Uh, but he verbally committed here on the stage to loving the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that. I love him. That's what he said. And uh, that's what Brian said. And he wants to live a life patterned after Christ. That's what he said again. If he says that, I'm going to take him at his word. What am I going to do? No, you don't. You don't love Jesus. You don't want to follow him. I mean, listening to him, I honestly believe that the only thing that I could do was try and understand him better, try and hear what his perspective was, where he was in his walk, according to my understanding of biblical truth, which again is lim limited, and to allow God, through his Holy Spirit, to reach Brian with things I think are true, uh, by and through his stated faith. 
Understand though, Brian and Jay are hoping the exact same thing for me. They are sitting there in their respective faith positions and they are hoping, oh, I hope Sean will come to understand this thing that's so very important to me and my walk. And all the arguing and finger pointing in the world are not going to bring us together. It will not do it. Believe me, we've tried. You know we've tried before. Um, only faith and love will bring people together. And that is the work of the Spirit. And a work that sometimes takes a long time to resolve. Sometimes it's a work that might not even get resolved here between parties. So Jay and Brian and myself have come to a place where Jay and, and Brian, they're going to teach and preach the things that they believe are important, and I'm going to do the same, and we're going to, we've decided, and, and I make that decision with everybody. Personally, I've made that decision. I'm going to live peaceably with everybody. I will state my position. They can state theirs. We can dialogue about what is supported where and how, how it's interpreted in this language and that. But in the end, I'm going to choose to love people. And they have decided to do the same. And really, isn't that all we can ask is to, I mean, isn't that what I think God would want of his creations, of his children, of people who say they love him? That they'll love each other, at least. And if that love includes sharing something that's important in your heart with them, fine. But we can do that peaceably. So um, look at all the other routes that have been taken for centuries especially in the Mormon Christian debates. Uh, I tell Brian he's wrong. He tells me I'm wrong. Jay gets angry. The accusations keep going and going and going. We part company as enemies. And uh, all of us are claiming Christ. All of us are seeking to follow him. I think it's about time we let any and all who claim his name to pursue him how they want. They're responsible before God. I'll be responsible for God how I have chosen to pursue him. You are the same. You are responsible for what you've decided to believe about him and what you've decided to uh, disregard. And with that, how about a moment from the word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. As a number of you are aware, we go through uh, the books of the Bible on Sundays at campus, Milk and Meat, and in our milk, we're going through Acts. And in that book, there's a debate about circumcision that's going on among the believers, which the apostles got involved and said, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. Paul, come to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Let's all get together. It's the first uh, apostolic council, and let's talk about this. Should... Do Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved? That was what the claim was. In Acts chapter 16, verse 4, we read the, that a letter, an epistle, is being given to three different places regarding this subject. And it says this at, at verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and the elders which were at Jerusalem. So simply put, they took these written out epistles and said, this is what was decided at Jerusalem. Here, 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 take it. Now, that phrase, they delivered to them the decrees, is in the Greek, dokeo. And it means to think upon something. 
That's what dokeo in the Greek, it means to ponder, think upon, and say, okay, I accept that. With my best of thinking, I dokeo that. I accept it, my best of thinking. Um, I would read this then, that they delivered to the Gentiles, the epistles, to think about, to consider, and ponder. What did the epistle say? Gentiles don't need to worry about circumcision. Dokeo that. Think about it. An interesting thing happens, though, over the course of Christian history, because that term dokeo in the Greek, when Jerome translated the Bible into uh, Latin, and we get the Latin Vulgate, um, dokeo became the Latin dogma. And with this change came a very different interpretation of what those epistles actually represented when they were given to the different uh, Gentile gatherings. See, where the Greek dokeo means to think, the Latin dogma means something far more strident than to just think on something. Uh, through the Latin lens, if you even want to call it the Catholic lens, dogma has become a specific tenet or an authoritative doctrine set forth um, by a body that, has to, that is mandatorily received. This is a dogma of the church. And so this shift is really important to understand in that translation process of going from the Greek and then the Latin translation from dokeo to uh, dogma because dokeo means think about this, dogma means this is what it is, accept it, you see? In other words, I would suggest that the faith through the Greek was subjectively understood. Uh, that which one thinks or believes is good and right instead of objectively demanded that which must be received as law. And so you can see how religion inserted itself in the mindset the apostolic church was more about here, we want to give this to you to think about. When religion stepped in, it was here, we want to give this for you to follow. And that's a huge difference. Herein lies the difference between those who will die and go before God and say, well, I, I believe this. I, I don't even know if this will happen. But, you know, God, I believe this. I, I followed that. It was important to me. And those who said, this is what my church taught, and I followed it uh, blindly. You know, I think that's the difference. So in my estimation, the Greek fully represents the actual of how it should be. The will of God in the individual's life who subjectively understands by the Spirit what they believe and what they don't uh, versus uh, a dogmatic uh, approach. And with that, we are going to combine tonight, oh, the excitement that we have. We're going to combine tonight, if I had kids today, with our board of direction. I have a family of five and, you know, we've come out of Mormonism. We're now in this. What should we do with that? And, you know, so we just thought, why don't we just start throwing out some ideas if we had kids today. I would teach them as soon as they could understand, if I had kids today, young kids, that every minute of every day of their life, they are choosing who they're going to be. And I'd, I'd wrap each day up, if I could, at night, bedtime, and I'd say, well, who did you choose to be today? Now, if you ask young kids this, if they don't have much structure, they don't think too abstractly yet, their brains aren't done cooking. So they, 
you got to kind of give them some parameters. So what I would do is I would say, you know, uh, instead of what were you today, I would say, here is what you could be today. You could be part of the rats, you could be a czar, or you could be a star. I would give them those three choices, narrow it down. And then I would go and I would explain to them what those three things were. I'd say, you know, rats are pretty dirty creatures. They cause, they bring, they carry the plague through fleas and uh, they live in the dark and they infest pretty filthy places on the earth. And they're not dumb. They're really quite smart actually, but they're, they use their intelligence pretty much for themselves. They, they'll defend their babies, but they'll also eat them. They sometimes will jump on people's faces and they're known to bite babies. So that's a rat. And I would say, that's a category, the rats. And then I'd say, a czar, well, a czar, that's a weird word. Yeah, czars are pretty much kings or leaders, um, monarchs, sovereigns, and czars are leaders on this earth. And they oversee a kingdom and they're called a czar, T-S-A-R. And then I would finally say, and then finally there's the stars. Now the stars are the best of all because what they do is they shine light from heaven. They are bright, powerful, huge, sometimes huge fiery balls out in the universe, stars, okay? And so after introducing to them, I would follow up each day at bedtime and I'd say, so what were you? Were you with the rats? Were you a czar? Or were you a star? And then they would say, oh, today I was a rat. I was with the rats. Oh, what did you do? Oh, well, Billy, we blocked him in the bathroom, in those girls' bathroom. And, oh, and then you could talk to him. Well, why did you do that? And, and you could start to hear their heart about things. And then you could counsel them. Or they could say, oh, today I was a czar. Why? Well, they asked me uh, to clean the chalkboard and I led other kids to help do it. Or something like that. Or today I was a star. I, I shared something important about being good with a friend. And so it opens up the dialogue and it compartmentalizes for the kid these three things, right? So finally, once they had the alphabet down, follow me, Delaney, follow me. This is important. <laughs> once they had the alphabet down, like say they're eight or nine years old, one day I would, I would drop it on them. I'd say, do you know why I chose rats and star and czar? And I would say, God, he gives everybody on this earth, uh, he gives everybody on this earth four letters to work with. And those four letters, you get to organize them any way you want. So you can be part of the rats, or you can be a czar, and this is spelled differently, I know, but it's also spelled this way. Or you could be a star. And that's why I chose those three things, because it's your choice what you're going to be. And then I would probably say, and let me ask you something. What is the big difference, not in how to describe these things, but between these three words? What is the biggest difference you see? And if they progressed in English enough, they might realize that this is plural and these are singular. That, and I would say, that's right. And I would say, because it's really easy in this world to be a rat. It's really, really easy to join that crowd and to cause trouble and to spread disease and to do what you want and live in the dark. I mean, everybody can be a rat. It's really something to be a, a czar. I mean, that's just one king. That's, and, and, and to be a star even is even harder. That's the biggest of them all. But it's up to you. 
You have the four letters, you get to decide. And so if I had kids today, I would teach them concepts like that to help when you sit down at night and they're starting to fall asleep, let them start to talk it through and question and wonder what they're doing with their life. All right, let me get a drink. Part five. No more hacking at the branches. We're striking true to the root this year. Our last show on the topic, dated January 17th, I think, because uh, we've had other shows in between, we talked about how linguist and social gadfly Noam Chomsky uh, in a fantastic documentary called Requiem for the American Dream uh, describes the ways and means which the 1%, the most powerful, actually the one-tenth of 1%, the most powerful in the world that represent big government, uh, multinational corporations, and major media outlets, work very hard uh, to keep the majority not only out of power, but pretty much out of the game by keeping them spectators rather than participants. That's the goal. Take the masses and let's not let them be participants. Let's keep them spectators so that we can puppeteer from these three general areas how we want things to go. My contention is that this has been the same goal, whether written and spoken of or just it just happens this way in institutional religion. And that the brick and mortars have accomplished this through the same principles that Chomsky explains when he talks about multinational uh, corporations and big government and, and major media outlets. So he summarizes what they do, Chomsky does, by saying they... This is all about the deliberate concentration of power, wealth, and control in the hands of the few exercised upon the many. All right? So with regard to religion, my suggestion is to say, are we experiencing the same thing and have we experienced the same thing for the past 2,000 years? The deliberate concentration of power Wealth and control in the hands of the few exercised upon the many. Look around. Don't we see this same thing and it's done in the name of God? Haven't we seen that from the beginning? That as soon as, uh, as, soon as the last apostle died, whenever that was, you can say 90, 95 AD if it was John, corruption began. And it has been corrupt since that time. There is not one brick-and-mortar institutional religion that is not corrupt. Not one. They are corrupt in one way or another. Why? Because they're run by men. That is a very different picture than what the New Testament says the church should be run by. The church should be run by the Spirit, not by men and women. So stop, look, and listen. Take the time, go to church, and start listening to what your pastor is telling you. Really listen to the nuanced statements. Really listen to what is being taught, what is being suggested, what you're being reminded of constantly, and uh, kind of what the power wants you to support. Uh, 
We had a local church here. I got news of this last week from someone who had, uh, came here. And they told me that the pastor said from the pulpit, those of you who are putting $5 bills in the donation are robbing God. That's what he said. So sit and listen. When you hear things like that, vote with your feet. Vote with your feet. Don't go back because it's a manipulation. And, it, and it's, it's an important thing to recognize in the pursuit of truth. From the single non-denoms to the multi-unit denominations spread out over the world, the aim is typically the same, the deliberate concentration of power in the hands of the few. The Pope, the prophet, the apostles, the reverends, the bishops, the pastors, the, the elders boards, the deacons this, the whatever, exercised upon the many, the billions of people who just want to know God, and yet they are puppeteered by the top to, because the top wants to get what they want. Going all the way back, Adam Smith, he uh, called these false shepherds the masters of mankind. And he said their job is to make sure that their own interests are well cared for, no matter how grievous the impact is on others. Jesus described these masters of mankind in religion all the way back in Matthew 23, 15. Remember, that was a whole scathing diatribe he threw out on the scribes and Pharisees. A whole chapter. I mean, he's relentless in what he says to them. And this is one, uh, verse 15, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of Gehenna than yourselves. So in religion, the impact on others by the powers that be range from the seriously egregious, I mean like major Jim Jones cult-like manipulations uh, upon people, all the way down to just annoying things like if you're putting $5 in, you're robbing from God. So I have said or I've suggested stop, look and listen. It's really needed as an exercise for you to begin to develop your observational skills of what is moving the thing you're part of. Now, when I was examining Mormonism as a faithful member after 40 years and I had a born again experience that I've shared many times at a roadside, I went back and I continued to be a, an active Latter-day Saint. But I took a tablet once and I decided for this month, when I attend these meetings with my wife and sit in sacrament meeting and go to priesthood, I'm going to make hash marks every time Jesus' name is used, Jesus, Jesus Christ, um, and not at the end of a testimony or a prayer. Those didn't count. And over the three or four times priesthood and Sunday school and sacrament, the hash marks down. Every time it's used, the average of my three times, which isn't that many, zero. I'm not kidding you. And I've been told that's changed since. And praise God, that's great. They're making moves to refocus on the founder of the faith, who isn't Smith, it's, it's Christ, I hope. But uh, that helped lead me out because I, I said, okay, I want to really listen to what is being said here. And for the first time in my LDS life, I decided to actually try to do a, a, a quantitative analysis of what was being said over the pulpit by everybody involved. And I'm not kidding, after the three, it was a zero uh, when it came to teaching. 
Chomsky points out relative to governments and, and corporations how James Madison made it clear that the goal of the masters of men is to prevent democracy at all costs. Now, I'm talking about democracy within the faith here. We typically do not see it that way. We see it as top-down, authoritative. I think that the faith is a democratic uh, experience. It should be. Where there isn't the grand poopa sitting on the stage, there isn't the pope and the prophet. Jesus is our prophet. There isn't the apostle. Jesus is our apostle. There, there, there are teachers and there are other people and there are administrators, but they aren't the ones who are leading the people. The spirit is leading the people. And so uh, uh, James Madison pointed out that the masters of, of, of men were to prevent democracy at all costs because to do so would insulate the masters from the uprising of the masses from taking their wealth and control. On, the basis, this docu- on that basis, the documentary unfolds. And the 10 steps Chomsky, unbelievable genius in 75 minutes, rattles off the principles uh, by which they operate. And, and it rolls forth in this uh, uh, presentation that is a lockstep, seamless presentation of how it works. And the, 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 the 10 principles are this. And we're not going to cover them tonight, but we're going to cover them in the next few weeks. Reduce democracies first. Shape ideology. Redesign the economy. Shift the burden. Attack solidarity. Run the regulators. Engineer elections. Keep the rabble in line. Manufacture consent. And marginalize the population. Taking the genius of uh, Dr. Chomsky, I personally see those same insights he has into big government and major media outlets, very, very applicable to uh, major institutional and even minor institutional religion. Before we move through those 10 principles next week um, and apply them to organized religion, there's something we really need to fully understand in order to appreciate the comparison in my estimation. And you know, I ardently maintain that today, more than even when we started down this path, the following biblical supported points need to be understood for us to understand why it's important to examine this and why it's important to do something about it, all right? If you don't agree with these points, you're not going to see why Chomsky's points are so applicable. So a quick rehearsal, and we'll open up the phone lines and read the emails and see what's going on out there. I strongly suggest, according to the Bible, the one true God promised to save the nation of Israel from their sin with a promised Messiah. And this Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, came and suffered for the sins of the world. And I believe he reconciled the world to God, God to the world, whichever way you're going to put it, as the author and finisher of our faith. And that Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected which was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And as this stone or rock, he told the religious rulers and the Jews of his day, his brothers, his sisters, that either they could fall on him and be broken, or he would fall on them and that rock would grind them to powder. He gave an either or there. And humble yourself, fall on me and be broken and then be saved, or I will fall on you and grind you to powder. Then they crucified him. And the Lord's apostles were taught by him, take this message out, take this good news out that I have come, 
and take it out to everywhere you can. But let me tell you something, and then this is a paraphrase, but he said it. You won't get to all of Judea before the end of the age. You won't get to everybody before it all ends. Check my facts. Don't trust me. Look it up. He said, I'm coming back to grind to powder. And so get the message out the best you can, but you're not going to get through all of Judea. So we read the New Testament scripture and every writer of the New Testament says he's coming. He's coming. It's coming. Be prepared. The day is at hand. The day is coming. Uh, and, and, and as we've said before, either the apostles were wrong. And if they were, I don't trust anything they wrote or they were right. And they were. And so I trust everything they wrote. They weren't wrong. They weren't under the assumption that he, may, he might be coming back or he's coming back, but they were wrong. They knew it. He gave them the signs. He told them, I'm coming back to grind to powder. I'm going to come with reward for those who believe me. I'm going to come with justice for those who don't. And that was prophesied. He said, within a generation, Matthew 24, he said, it will happen within a generation, which is considered 40 years in biblical language. So that's 70 AD. What happened in 70 AD? You know, uh, Jerusalem was wiped out. The temple was ground to powder. Not one stone left upon another. The Holy of Holies, everything taken down. Genealogies all burned up. A million plus, a million two Jews killed. 70 AD, done. What the apostles said happened, what Jesus said happened, and uh, the Roman armies did their job. After this day of the Lord, after this, his coming with rewards and judgment, he took his church. He saved his church. He saved his believers then. That's what it's all about contextually as you read the scripture. And brick and mortar religion should have died at that point. It should all be by the Spirit from that point forward. Of men and women sharing of, of, of the gospel going forward, the Spirit leading. But what happened was men said, no, we need to usurp that power, like Chomsky talks about, so we can control the masses. Constantine says, ah, it's going to really help me out in my political uh, means. And he inserts it. So we have a thousand years where God lets the Catholic Church rule. We don't get to read the Bible at all. The Vulgate is a complete mess by the time it comes around in 15 20 or whatever, when Erasmus gets a hold of it and says, this thing doesn't even look like something we can believe in. The, the Reformation comes, the light starts coming in again, and, but the Reformation and Protestantism with all of its sola scriptura and all of its killing people who didn't believe and, and, and Calvin and his mean-spiritedness, it's, all, it's just other forms of brick and mortar. But true believers from the heart have been with him since. The Spirit has moved upon those people ever since. But the powers that be, the one Chomsky's after in the corporate world, they've been there in the religious world. All attempts at recreating it have been a fail. The Mormons think they've recreated it well, right. Yeah, a billion dollar mall with the prophet cutting the thing saying, let's go shopping. That is Jesus' church, right. So from the Catholics to the Mormons, to the Baptists, to the non-denoms, to the Calvary chapels, to campus, the church we do here, none of it is right. It's the individuals and Christ. God promised in after the time of the Jews, he would write his laws on the hearts of people. He would write his laws on the hearts. He promised that believers would be living epistles. He promised that no man needs to teach his neighbor for all would know him. 
He said that anything that can be shaken will be shaken one last time so that the only thing that will remain, this is in Hebrews, the only thing that will remain is that which cannot be shaken at all. That's the only thing that will be, remain. So let me ask you something. Can a building fund be shaken? Yes, it can. It's not going to remain. Can a pastor and his presence before a, a, a giant church or a small church be shaken? He certainly can. So it's not about them. Can priesthoods be shaken? They can be shaken. All of it. Vestiges of material religion, brick and mortar edifices, no priesthoods, no temples made with hands, no leaders to discipline us and tell us what we need to think and believe and see and do. No one to decide with a church council how things have to happen. The Spirit is doing it right in and through us. Let me give you some scriptures that we don't hear very often. Paul said, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. You ever heard this one? It's beautiful. Happy is he or she that condemns not himself in the thing which they allow. You'll have people say you can't have a, a drink of alcohol. You'll have people say you should wear a tie to church. You'll have people say that you should dance before the Lord uh, at, every, at every meeting. You should hold snakes. It goes on and on. If you want to do those things, happy are you before the Lord, but don't impose them on other people. Paul says in Romans 14, 10, why do you judge your brother? And why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, shut your mouth. Let people believe how they're going to believe. Let them live how they're going to live. Let them sin or be obedient to whatever extent they're going to choose to do and be under the direction of the Holy Spirit because they will all stand myself and yourself before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, every man, when it comes to giving, every man according to, as he purposeth in his heart when it comes to giving, okay? So let him give, not grudgingly, listen, or of necessity, or of necessity, Paul says, for God loves a cheerful giver. I bet one in a hundred, one in a thousand, I bet one in a thousand churches teach tithing. They teach giving because that's your portion to God. They skip that passage. It should not be by necessity. It shouldn't be grudgingly. It should be if you can do it with a cheerful heart. And if you can't do anything from a cheerful heart in his real church, don't do it because it doesn't matter, right? John uh, 3.23, and this is his commandment. You ready for all the commandments? And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. That's it. Believe on his son, Jesus Christ, love one another as he gave commandment. This is his commandment, singular. Not these are his commandments. This is his commandment. Have faith and love one another. I'm going to appeal to one last thing, and then we're going to go to the phones. I appeal to it often. I, I, I suggest you take it out and read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 because it summarizes the plan that God had when he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to reconcile the world. You ready? Just listen to these passages. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, so Christ is first. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Okay? 
Every one of the apostles in Christ said, I'll be back in 40 years. Apostle said, he's coming now. And then afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. You ready? Now listen to this. Then comes the end. That's it. Comes the end. When he shall have, talking about Christ, delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Here you go. It's done. Came back, destroyed, rewarded, got the church, the bride, right? When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Has he had success? Has he had the victory? He has. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I would suggest he's put death. It's never physical death when we talk about death in the New Testament. It's almost always from Jesus' mouth spiritually. It's about the spirit. Okay, the last enemy that should be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's why God sent his Son, so that God could be all in all. This is a handing over of everything. The handing over is done. Christ has had the victory. He's not still having the victory. There's not a war with Satan. Jesus, when he was on the earth, said, Satan's done for. Now it's done. It's over. Satan, he's still contempt, but he has no power past this uh, life. He cannot tie people up at all. He can tempt. He can cause trouble. God lets him do what he's going to do, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. Before there was sin, he let Satan go and do these things, but he has no power because Christ has had that final victory. It's over. It's done. Trust that. And if you do, then you're going to be able to see the game of playing religion, of playing church, and, and how we have allowed it to go on, in part because we're too damn lazy to say, oh, I'm going to take responsibility for my own faith. I'm going to go before God myself. I'm, you know, most people say, oh, let me put someone in between so I can point the finger of responsibility at them. You can't. We'll continue to talk more next week about the exercise of control and the last vestige uh, that Chomsky hasn't gone after at least, and that's institutional religion. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And with that, we're gonna take a look at this. focus on the LDS church because I was LDS for 40 years. I understand it well from first-hand experience. And uh, that's kind of where God has put me to talk about Mormonism. Part of that discussion includes talking about Christianity. We've discovered that you don't just have a discussion about Mormonism because what happens is you bring people out of the Mormon church and then they're left with uh, quite a mess in the Christian church. So I talk about both. I was LDS for 40 years. I've now been a Christian for nearly 20, and I understand both sides, and that's where my heart is, that's where God has put us, so that's what I do. You know, I, uh, I copied off five emails and I've just, I've just looked at them and they're all way too long. And uh, 
I don't think I can really summarize them effectively as I look through them during that spot. I am getting a notification from Wendy that there are no calls tonight. And so, like I said before, if there's no calls and the emails aren't really worth reading, we're going to end it. Next week, part six of No More Hacking at the Branches, but Chopping at the Root. We'll see you then. I'm on the ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the Storms arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light till monkeys start.